Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through chapter 1 of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is what we have adopted as our statement of faith. Chapter 1 of the scriptures is critical. We say this every week because every other doctrine is based on the precepts of the scripture. This is where we find um, explanations. This is where we find justifications. This is where we find... Um, nuances and uh, all of the sub-doctrines are verified through the scripture. So we, first of all, they put in the confession of the scriptures, of the holy scriptures, because it is so important. If we don't believe this, nothing else is true. So we have been working our way through and have made our way and kind of camped out on talking about translations in the vulgar language, which is the common language of the people, and the um, translations have been largely uh, based on the same text for about uh, 1,800 years. And then we see the rise of the modern critical text. The Texas Receptus, or the received text, uh, as, it, as it has been called, and in fact uh, was the predominant and is still the majority text, um, has been called into question as being inaccurate. Uh, by proponents of the modern critical text. So the modern critical text have done, uh, like anyone who wants to market their uh, product, they have now claimed that their uh, version is based on the majority text, uh, but it simply isn't true. Anyone who looks into this with uh, even a broad gaze can readily identify that the text types of the modern critical text, which are based on the Alexandrian text, uh, do not match the majority of the text that have been found, uh, less than 3%, in fact, they agree with. So uh, we've worked our way through some comparisons between translations that are based on the modern critical text and those that are based on the received text. And, and the three that we've been comparing have been the authorized version, sometimes called the King James Version, not isolated to the King James Version, but the authorized version, um, the NIV, and the CEV. Now, uh, let me just mention why... Um, these other two versions. I don't know that I've mentioned that in previous classes, but why we're comparing the two versions. Both of them are based on the same Greek. They're the same Greek. Different translators, but the same Greek. The NIV is the second most predominant Bible next to the King James. So the King James is, so, so many more copies have been published of the King James, there will never be another Bible that will approach the quantity of King James that have been uh, published. Uh, it's just impossible. And obviously that happens when you have 400 years of being able to print a Bible, especially if you're the only one for 300 years. Um, so uh, that the NIV is second, not a close second, but that's been predominant. Now, the NIV has lost some of its uh, standing because there's been a numerous uh, other translations that have come about, all with some nuances or something that they want to offer different from the NIV. The CEV is the most popular version today the CEV, Contemporary English Version. Now, just because you're not used to that being the case, that's not the case for the church in general. Okay, the church in general, the CEV is the most popular version used today. Is it in Reformed churches? Well, no, definitely not. But it is in most churches. All right, so that's why we're comparing them. And obviously, as we've been working through, uh, we're seeing some differences between them. A lot of it is, is the same. But there are some subtle differences, and we see some of those differences being uh, critical to 
proof text that we use for doctrines. And so that's why we're, we're not reviewing all the, all the differences. There's way too many. And we're spending a lot of time reviewing them as it is. We're going to finish up the, review, the comparisons today and uh, move on. But that's why we're comparing what we're comparing. So uh, now we have 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind. I think I actually mentioned this one last time. Does that sound familiar? Yes? No? No? Okay. NIV. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men. Yeah, I did, I did mention this one last time. Because the primary difference you see here is, is that this is unrighteous. How do we judge who's unrighteous? How do we judge? The righteous are the ones who Christ did what for? Died for propitiation of your sins, right? You cannot become righteous on your own. Are you still wrongdoers? Yes, you are. Yes, you still do things wrong, right? Anybody here not? Two, three, four of you that don't do anything wrong? No. You still do, but you're righteous. See the difference here? Keep going. Do you not know that evil people won't have a share in the blessings of God's kingdom? So now... It's not just wrongdoers, it's evil people. Well, who considers themselves evil? Not many. Very, very few consider themselves actually evil. You understand? In other words, as we move across this from left to right here on these translations, what we see is less and less responsibility for your actions. All right, 1 Corinthians 7.1. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. NIV. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Does that sound the same? Ask Bill Clinton if it's the same. CEV. Now I will answer. <laughs> don't, don't ask Bill Clinton. I'm just saying. <laughs> he made a point. Of just differentiating. Now I will answer the question that you have asked in your letter. You ask, is it best for people not to marry? What? It completely changes the meaning of the passage. Let's keep going. 1 Corinthians 15, 47. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. All right, so now you're familiar with this, right? We're talking about the first Adam and the second Adam, right? He's talking about Adam and Christ. The first man was of the... The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Now, this is a critical difference, right? Because this says he's the Lord, he's a man, the Lord from heaven. This is the second man is of heaven. Is there a difference there? If you're from heaven or of heaven? Yes, there's a big difference. The difference is where you actually are. Are you physically here? Are you from heaven? Or are you just of heaven, of the essence of heaven? There's a difference. Go on to the next one. CEV, the first man was made from the dust of the earth, but the second man came from heaven. Do you see any difference there? What's the big word here that's not here? Lord. Lord. 1 Corinthians 16, 22, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema, maranatha. NIV, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. Now, this, by the way, you don't see the only difference here is that they took out Jesus Christ. 
See that? The NIV, this is a true in many, many, I've looked at this a couple, several weeks ago. The NIV and all the modern critical texts, they take Jesus Christ out of being identified as Lord many times. At any rate, CEV, I pray that God will put a curse on everyone who doesn't love the Lord. And may the Lord come soon. So, same thing, just taking Jesus Christ out of it. Galatians 2.16, the authorized version. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Okay. NIV, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. Same, right? But by the faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference here, but that's not significant of in. There is a difference. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. So this is justified by the faith of Christ and the faith in Christ. There is a whole message we could preach there. We're not going to. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Okay, so this is pretty much the same, right? You could, there are differences here. In and of is different. But anyway, let's go to CEV. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law through faith, in Jesus Christ, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Now, the bottom is exactly the same, right? The top is essentially is the same. Obviously they reworded a little bit there, but not significantly enough. Do you see the differences there? Those are pretty much the same. It's the middle part where we see a difference. So in, this, in, this, in the authorized version, we have believed in Jesus Christ. We might be justified by the faith of Christ, not by the works of the law. So we have put our faith in Jesus Christ. We might be justified by the faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. We have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. How are you justified? Now, obviously, I put this on the screen here because it matters. Why? Is it Christ's faith or your faith that saved you? Is it your action or Christ's action that saved you? It's Christ, not yours. If you notice, in these two versions, they've switched that. We talked about the doctrine of Christ. This verse is a proof text. It was the faith of Christ that justifies us. Who was he faithful to? What was he faithful to? The covenant of redemption. He was faithful to the covenant of redemption that he made with his father before time began. Christ's faith to that covenant of redemption is what justifies you. Our actions, our faith in Christ, the faith that we have in Christ is not what saves you. Hmm. That's tough, isn't it? Have you heard of this thing called election? Did you pick God or God pick you? Hmm. It's tough. Sometimes hard to get your arms around that. Doesn't make it less true. Because we really want to be in charge. There's a difference there. Just an example. 
Galatians 3.1, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. NIV, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. CEV, you stupid Galatians, <laughs> who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Is there a difference between being crucified and portrayed as crucified? Yeah, portrayed as crucified is people have said that this is what happened, not that he was. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, authorized version, for the grace, by grace of for by grace are you saved through faith, and that in none of, your, of yourselves it is the God, not of works, lest any man should boast. NIV, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now that's fairly close, would you say? Just a little word different, not bad. CEV, and you were saved by faith in God, who treats us much better than we deserve. This is God's gift to you, and not anything you've done on your own. It isn't something you have earned, so there's nothing you can brag about. Okay, now this definitely is modernization of these words, right? So like, lest any man should boast, so that no one can boast, so there's nothing you can brag about. I, I think we could probably say that's the same. Would you agree with that? that I mean, that sounds pretty much the same. Now, Notice that this also says it isn't something you've earned. Not of works, not of works. Well, th that is what that's really meaning. Not of works. It's not something you did. Not something you earned. So in this part, you were saved by faith in God. For it is grace you are saved through faith. Grace you have been saved. Through faith. No grace. No grace. You see the difference? It's not God's grace. It's faith in God. Who did the saving? Who gives the grace that we're saved through? Authorized version of NIV, both say it. It is by grace you've been saved. Now they go on to explain. Through faith, not from yourself, it's the gift of God, Right? But it's God's grace that saves you. Even if you're unfaithful, you're still saved. It's God's grace. But here, you're saved by faith in God. It's your faith in God that saves you. And then you say, well, if you look over here, it says you're saved by, for by grace are you saved through faith. That's not of yourself, it's the gift of God. Now, I could read that passage right there and I could say, I could say, well, God's gift is grace. Right? That's his gift. Or salvation. That's his gift. We could say this, right? We didn't do it. Not of ourselves. Right? All right. So come over here. Now, what can you say over here? Over here, it's a little different, isn't it? You're saved by your faith. It's not God that gives it to you. Because they go on to say, who treats us much better than we deserve. That's God's gift to you. What's God's gift to you? Treating you better than you deserve. There's no grace. See the difference? It's a big difference. This is continuing the same passage. Verse 10. 
For we are his, authorized, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. NIV, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I would argue that these are almost the same. Reworded, but almost the same. CEV, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he has always wanted us to live. That's why he sent Christ to make us what we are. Is this the same as these? It's not the same. It's not the same. Now this sounds right, but that's not what this passage is saying. It's not what this passage, this passage is saying that you are who you are because God has created you in Jesus Christ and you're going to do good works. He planned that you should do good works in Christ. Over here, God planned for us to do good things and to live as he's always wanted us to live. Do you see that over here? No. That's why he sent Christ to make us what we are. So this passage is saying, God sent Christ so that we would do good things. Is that one of the, re- one of the things that Christ did while he was here? Did he not show us how to live? He did, right? Would you agree with that? Give an example. But was his purpose to come to show us how to live? Or was his purpose to come to be sacrificed? To pay the penalty? Was to pay the penalty. And the living was part of it. Why? Because he's showing us that you do not have to sin. Sin does not have to control us. There's a difference in the intention of the verses here. Ephesians 2.15, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances for to make in himself of twain one new man, so make ye peace. Now this is a little bit hard because it's in the middle of a passage. That's all right. So NIV, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his, its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. Okay, we'll talk about the difference in a second. CEV, well, let's talk about it now because it's gonna, we're going to get right into it in the CEV. So notice what it says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So notice, in his flesh, he got rid of, what's an enmity? It's a clash, it's a disagreement, right? It's a struggle between two. So, Christ abolished in his flesh the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. So, in other words, our flesh struggles against the law. He got rid of that. Why? He proved that we do not have to live without obeying the law. We can live without obeying the law. And we will not be punished now because we have not fulfilled the law. But notice here, he set aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. Is there a difference there? Yeah, here's the difference. This is saying that he made it not hard, not disagreeing for us to obey the law. This is saying you don't have to follow the law anymore. He set it aside. See the difference? If I'm a pastor and I'm trying to preach about the law, can you see that I'd have a difference depending on my versions there? Right? Because this version is saying Christ set aside the law. The law doesn't count anymore. 
Well, this version says, he made it so it's not, it's not a struggle anymore. Let's look at this one. So you say, well, I don't know if that's what that's exactly saying, Brian. I mean, I see what you're saying, and you're saying it's saying that. But, okay, let's go to the next version based on the same Greek text. To destroy the law of Moses with all its rules and regulations and commands. Even he brought Jews and Gentiles together as though we were only one person when he united us in peace. So, notice, first of all, this is saying he came to destroy the law of Moses with its rules and its commands. Did Christ come to destroy the law? No, in fact, he specifically says he did not come to destroy the law. But to fulfill it. And no, not a jot or a tittle will pass away from the law till all heaven and earth are destroyed. So, is that a difference? That's a difference. It's a big difference. It's a difference on how you look at the Old Testament. If you can base your view of the Old Testament on this version, then the Old Testament doesn't matter. It's quaint stories. Because how to live no longer counts. Right? Because Christ came to destroy the law of Moses. That's not what he said, even. Colossians 1-2. So this is just one of those examples. God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this one just says, God, our Father. This one just says, God, our Father. Taking, of course, Lord Jesus Christ. 1 John 5, 7, and 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Now, this is a passage that we use regarding the Trinity, this is a passage that's used for a number of our doctrines. This is one of the proof texts. Is it the only one? No, but it's one of them. So what happens in the NIV? There are three that testify. So now we have here this witness in heaven and in earth. These two versions, there is no witness in heaven and earth. There is just testifying. So there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. Well, so where is this compared to the authorized version? Well, it's this one. It's the three that bear witness in earth. Can you see that the three that bear witness in record in heaven, Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, who's are, who are those? It's the Trinity. Who's the Word? Christ, right. So it's the Father, it's Christ, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. Then here, there's three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree in one. Now this is very interesting because this right here, the three that bear witness in the earth doesn't say that God bears witness at all. This is about man. This is about God. This is giving witness to both. You are these witnesses. This is God witness. They, these two versions take God out. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. The three are in agreement. In fact, there are three who tell about it. They are the spirit, the water, and the blood. They all agree. Is there a difference? Yeah, there's a big difference. This one says God, this one says no. John 5, 1 John 5, 13. These things are written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you, you have eternal life, and that you, must be, you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So NIV says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. Now, there isn't a huge difference there, right? Can you see that? Written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God. Things are write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. So that you may know you have eternal life. And that you, be, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Not here. 
and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. Not there. CV. All of you have faith in the Son of God. And I have written to let you know that you have eternal life. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Both of these take the name of the Son of God out. Gone. Why? It's part of one of those doctrines that we talked about. It's, these, it's making, taking Christ out of references as the Son of God. All right. That's the end of our comparison. Are you glad? Whew. All right. So, in summary, current English translations. God's word is very important to him. We saw these verses already. Isaiah, Psalm 138.2 and Isaiah 66.5. The first temptation of mankind in human history was by Satan in the Garden of Eden and was an attack on God's word. Genesis 3, 1-5. Hath God said, right? Hath God said. This was Satan's temptation to Eve. Attacks on the scripture existed through history. Even the apostles wrote about it. Let's look at those two passages. 2 Corinthians 2.17 is the first one. For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God speak we in Christ. And then 2 Peter 3.16, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are, not, that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. So in both cases, these verses are talking about the fact that sometimes the scripture is attacked. The first passage is directly, their reference is directly to the scripture being attacked. The second is Peter writing about Paul's works and saying how some people struggle with the things that Paul says to their own destruction. Why? Because they don't agree. If they, if they believe what Paul wrote in his epistles, inspired by God, would that be to their own destruction? No, of course not. It's to their own destruction because they struggle with it and they got a problem with it. They don't like it. That's so foreign to us today because everybody agrees with everything the Scripture says today and we don't have anybody that has any problems with the Scripture, right? Was that a, <laughs> a choke? <laughs> yeah, right. So... If I don't like the fact that all the example about what an elder is is masculine and that God's role for men and women in the church is clearly defined, then that's me struggling with something that Paul explains, isn't it? Because we see that over and over. Hmm. Can you see how that's happening today? It's still happening. It was happening even in the beginning. It's still happening now. God will preserve his word. Psalm 12, 6, and 7, Isaiah 48, Matthew 5, 18, 24, 35, and 1 Peter 1, 23, and 25. Now, again, this is a summary. We did talk about these things already. <laughs> I'm just summarizing. I'm bringing it back up. An English translation is, the on, is only the word of God to the degree that it is translated in accordance with the grammar, text, and form of the original scripture. Now, listen, we've talked about this also, spent a lot of time on it. And the point is, is that if you completely change the words, or partially change the words, is it God's word anymore? It can't be. Because you changed it, right? Look, what was Satan's temptation to Eve? Hmm? He questioned God's word. 
Okay, so who remembers specifically what he said? Let's look back at it. Why don't you turn, if you have your Bible, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Let's see specifically what Satan said. And you're going to recognize there's a pattern here. When God's word is tested and is tried, and someone says they have a problem with it, they do the same exact thing that Satan has done. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 5. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God hath made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the days ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So notice what he did. There's two things that happen here. The first thing is that he says, Hath God said you can't eat of every tree of the garden? So he turns this around, right? He turns it around. Now, look at it. Is that true? Is that true? Did God say you could not eat of every tree of the garden? Yes, that is true, right? Because they couldn't eat of one tree. So he takes some truth. Do you see this? He takes some truth. Then Eve says, oh, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden... God said, you can't eat it, nor should you touch it, lest you die. Did God say you can't touch it? Not as far as we see in scriptures. He just said, don't eat of it. So Eve tried to take it one step further. Now this is a problem. Because as soon as she takes what God said one step further, Satan now attacks. You shall not surely die. Now, to Eve, she's like, hmm, well, I guess I shouldn't have said you shouldn't touch it because he actually didn't say that if we touch it, we'll die. You can, you can imagine how this looked. Could Eve have reached out and touched that tree right then? And not died? But you see how Satan takes what God says and turns it. And... Eve helped him. Then, for God doth know the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Is that true? Were their eyes opened, and they would know good and evil? That was true. And it says, you shall be as gods, little g. But you see the point, right? It's subtle. He's changing, he adds things in to make it a little different. Would we possibly say that Satan was saying the same thing as God? That Satan's words are equivalent with God's words? We, we wouldn't say that, right? Because we would say, well, yes, your, there are, your eyes will be open, but not that you'll be God's. Right? Doesn't say that. So, when someone says, well, you know, the scriptures say this, but times have changed. Back then, their culture would have been offended if this happened. If they accepted homosexuality, if they accepted incest, if they accepted 
uh, women being in leadership over men. If they all these things, their cultures would have been affected. That's why they didn't do them. Have you heard this? Anybody heard this? You haven't, you haven't paying attention if you're not hearing it, right? I mean, everybody's heard this. You've heard this many, many times from people. And unfortunately, you're hearing it from many, many pastors. So that would be to infer that God didn't know what he was doing when he inspired the Word of God. That he only wrote it for the first generation of people that read it. Not for you. Not for his church. Just that first generation. Because after those cultural differences went away, it wouldn't matter anymore. Right? Let me ask you a question. In Jewish tradition, still today, and this is following in accordance with the scriptures, who covers their head when they go to synagogue? The men or the women? Ah, now you're thinking. You're starting to wonder a little bit. Who covers their head? The men do. The men do. The women are not commanded to. But they didn't go into the same place that the men did. But the men were commanded. They still wear the yarmulkes, right? You're familiar? A little <laughs> symbolic hat, right, on their head. We get to the New Testament. We get to Paul's writings. Who's told to cover their head and who's told not to cover their head? It's flipped. It's flipped. Women are told to cover. The men are not. Was that different than the culture? It was different than the culture at the time, right? It was different. They were not afraid to say this is how things should be even though it was different than the culture. God's word and the apostles and their writings, all the writers, not just apostles, the writers of the New Testament were not afraid to say what God told them to say. Right? Corinth. It was acceptable in the culture for incest. But it's in the church, so Paul has to address it because God's word says it's wrong. So he addresses it. Why are you letting this happen? This is wrong. You know it's wrong. Right? First Corinthians. Actually has to address it twice. Why? Because they go after that guy so hard that then in Second Corinthians he's going back and say, ease up a little bit. Have a little grace. He's, he's been exhorted enough. If I can paraphrase that a little bit. <laughs> Alright, you with me on this? In other words, they are challenging things in the culture. It's not that the scriptures were only intended for the people that heard them. This is the way that God's saying we should be. Does that make it easier for us? No. But it wasn't easy for them. It wasn't easy for them. So, the idea, the excuse of saying that we have to change the translation because we really should modernize it so that people will go along with it today or that it will match the culture today is blasphemy. God did not write it well enough for anyone today. He didn't make his word understandable for all future generations. His word should change. I'm pretty sure that it's the culture that should change, not the Bible. English translations that utilize the FE translation method. What was the FE? That was the formal equivalent translation method. That was the one 
where they translate in accordance with the grammar, text, and form of the original scripture. So those that utilize the FE translation method and are translated from the Masoretic text of the Old Testament and the Textus Receptus for the New Testament can be trusted as the most authentic English translations available today. So if they shift and start using the Latin Vulgate from the Roman Catholic Church as the basis for their translation of the Old Testament, it's a problem. By the way, the Jews still don't do that. They still use the Masoretic. Your Bible matches the Jews today. If you have a Bible based on the Masoretic text. If you have the CEV, no. All right. John Owen, he was a reformer from 1616 to 1683, in his work of the integrity and purity of the Hebrew and Greek text of the Scripture, defended the Reformation view of the Masoretic text and the Textus Receptus. All right. Hold on. This is a long quote, but it is such a great summary for our understanding of this issue that I've got it here. All right, so stay with me. You've got to pay attention on this one. Anybody need to get a cup of coffee or a mint before we start on the You're right? Okay. All right. Yeah, John Owen is not a man of few words. That's correct. No. It's just, and it's hard to pull a quote out from something that he's written because it's like it's woven into the whole, and he's got you know long sentences, but it's, it's like it's not, you can't just take two sentences and get the whole thought because his thought is three pages or whatever. All right. That was a freebie. <laughs> so this is of the integrity and purity of the Hebrew and Greek text of the Scripture by John Owen. The sum of what I am pleading for as to the particular head to be vindicated is that as the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament were immediately and entirely given out by God himself, his mind being in them represented unto us without the least interveniency of such mediums and ways as were capable of giving change or alteration to the least iota or syllable, so... By his good and merciful providential dispensation, in his love to his word and church, his whole word, as first given out by him, is preserved unto us entire in the original languages, where, shining in its own beauty and luster, as also in all translations, so far as they faithfully represent the originals, it manifests and evidences unto the consciences of men, without other foreign help or assistance, its divine original, and authority. We're not done. But the point here is, is that he's making the argument that right off the bat, that the original language, it shows itself to be the scripture. Now, the several assertions or propositions contained in this position are to me such important truths that I shall not be blamed in the least by my own spirit, nor I hope by any others, in contending for them, judging them fundamental parts of the faith once delivered to the saints. And though some of them may seem to be less weighty than others, yet they are so concatenated yeah, in themselves that by the removal or destruction of any one of them, our interest in the others is utterly taken away. Pause. He's going to get into these issues that he's talking about about the Scripture. And here's what he's saying. You can't take one away. Say, well, this part isn't like... Let's say providential preservation. Not true. Because that takes the others away. It messes with them. You need them all to be true. It will assuredly be granted that the persuasion of the coming forth of the word immediately from God in the way pleaded for is the foundation of all faith, hope, and obedience. But what, I pray, will it's advantage us that God did so once deliver his word if we are not assured also that that word so delivered hath been by his special care and providence, preserved, entire and uncorrupt unto us, 
or that it doth not evidence and manifest itself to be his word, being so preserved. In other words, what good does it do to us if God gave his word and then he let it get corrupted? It does us no good. If God's word matters, then it had to be preserved. You with me? By the way, I don't think it's a rabbit trail. It's more like a freebie. But just keep this in mind. This is the argument of proponents of the MCT. Because, they're, you know, those who are truly into it, and I'm not talking about a preacher who loves the NIV or, you know, anything else. I'm not talking about that. They love a translation. They think it's a great translation. And they believe the rhetoric about why it's a better translation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who somebody actually digs into this issue and understands what's happened in the history of these translations and where they came from and who said what. They don't ignore things. They take it all into account. All right? The people that do that, whether they're for the MCT or they're for the received text, they recognize there's a difference. Okay, now, you might say, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, they recognize there's a difference. That's why they're proponents of one versus the other, right? True. They recognize there's a difference, and so they have a significant problem. And what's the problem? Either the Texas Receptus is the true word of God, and the MCT is corrupt, or the Texas Receptus is corrupt, and the MCT is the true word of God. Now, the implication of that is the issue about translations. Because either God's word was available to his church, uncorrupted, since Christ, to today, or for 1,700, almost 1,800 years, the church did not have the uncorrupted word of God. It was hidden. It was hidden in these libraries that had these copies that they considered heretical. And if that's the true word of God then the church did not have the true word of God for all that time. Can you see how that's a critical, a crucial issue, really, to this? That alone is enough for you to make a decision. Is it possible that God did not allow his church to have an uncorrupted word for 18, essentially 1,900 years? If that's possible, you should have no problem with the MCT. And we can argue about changes, differences, why they matter, why they don't. We could talk about that. But if you think there's no way that God did not allow his church to have his word through all this time, the, the men who, the reformers, did not have God's word. They had pieces of it, parts of it. They didn't have it correct. If you believe in the MCT and you hold that to be the true word of God, you have to say that. Blessed, may we say, were the ages past who received the word of God in its unquestionable power and purity when it shone brightly in its own glorious native light and was free from those defects and corruptions which, through the default of men in a long tract of time, it hath contracted. But for us, as we know not well where to lay a sure foundation of believing that this book, rather than any other, doth contain what is left unto us of that word of his. So it is impossible we should ever come to any certainty, almost of any individual word or expression, whether it be from God or no. 
Far be it from the thoughts of any good man that God, whose covenant with his church is that his word and spirit shall never depart from it. That's Isaiah 59, 21, Matthew 5, 18, 1 Peter 1, 25, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, and Matthew 28, 20 have left it in uncertainties about the things that are the foundation of all faith and obedience, which he requires at our hands. In other words, is it possible that God commands us to obey his word and he let us have a corrupt copy? Good argument. He uses a lot of good arguments here. For the first transcribers of the original copies... And those who in succeeding ages have done the like work from them, whereby they have been propagated and continued down to us in a subserviency of the providence and promise of God, we say not, as in vainly charged by Morinus and Capellus, who he's arguing against, that they were all of any of them anamorteotai and theopnosteotai, which is infallible and divinely inspired, so that it was impossible for them in anything to mistake. So here's the argument. The argument is that these two guys... Marinus and Capellus, they said that every single person who copied the books of the Scripture was divinely inspired. Now this becomes a problem because sometimes you find a mistake in the copy, right? In all of them? No. But in some, right? So you get this manuscript, and this says 2,000, and this says 20,000. See a difference there? There's the difference, right? So they argued there's no way. John Owen says, no. It is known, it is granted, that failings have been amongst them, and the various elections, or readings, or variants, of the, thence, from thence has risen, of which afterward religious care and diligence in their work, with the due reverence of him with whom they had to do, is all we ascribe unto them. Not to acknowledge these freely in them, without clear and unquestionable evidence to the contrary, is highly uncharitableness, impiety, and ingratitude. This care and diligence, we say, is a subserviency to the promise and providence of God, hath produced the effect contended for, nor is anything further necessary thereunto on this account to argue as some do. So here's what he's saying. Look, we recognize that people could have made mistakes, but it wasn't because they intended to. We still need to recognize how serious their work was and be thankful, be thankful to them for the work that they did. What do we do? Well, we, with diligence, have to determine which one is correct and where it went awry. That's what he's talking about. From the miscarriages and mistakes of men, their ostentacy, I'm not sure about that word, <laughs> and negligence in transcribing the old heathen authors Homer, Aristotle, Tully, we think it not tolerable in a Christian or any one that hath the least sense of the nature and importance of the word or the care of God toward his church. In other words, look, why is it that we tolerate, we understand that man can actually make a, make a, a mistake when he's translating these guys, but yet man can't make a state mistake, he can't somehow, even though he views it as important, he can't actually make a, make a mistake? Yes. Shall we think that men who wrote out books wherein themselves and others were no more concerned that it is possible for men to be in the writings of the persons mentioned and others like them had as much reason to be careful and diligent in that they did as those who knew and considered that every letter and title that they were transcribing was part of the word of the great God, wherein the eternal concernment of their own souls and the souls of others did lie? Like, is it possible for us to say these guys who did these translations, 
they did not understand the importance of what they did? They didn't understand that not only their own souls, but the souls of others could depend on the accuracy of their work? Certainly, whatever may be looked for from the religious care and diligence of men lying under a, li- a loving and careful aspect from the promise and providence of God may be justly expected from them who undertook that work. However, we are ready to own all their failings that can be proved. To assert in this case without proof is injurious. injurious. So what is he saying? He's saying, look, we, we have to understand that they were doing, they were trying to be very careful about what they did. We understand that they could have some mistakes. We have to acknowledge those. We have to fix those. But it isn't because they were careless, which is what had been suggested. The Jews have a common saying among them, that to alter one letter of the law is no less sin than to set the whole world on fire. And shall we think that in writing it, they took no more care than a man who would do in writing out Aristotle or Plato, who for a very little portion of the world would willingly have done his endeavor to get both their works out of it? Considering that the word to be transcribed was every iota and title of it, the word of the great God, that that which was written and as written was proposed as his, as from him, and that if any failings were made, innumerable eyes of men, owning their internal concernment to lie in that word, were open upon it to discover it, and thousands of copies were extant to try it by. And all this known and known unto and confessed by every one that undertook this work, it is no hard matter to prove their care and diligence to have outgone that of other common scribes of heathen authors. In other words, they put so much work into this, and then finding other copies where they could verify what was correct if there was a difference between something, they were diligent in doing this to try to prove to make sure that it was preserved properly. Now, you understand that everything he's saying about how this should go and why we can trust the men who did this is completely opposite of the modern critical text. Because their intention is to change it. On purpose. They, they want to change it. Why? Well, because it doesn't speak to the culture. The truth is, there are prodigious things that are related to the exact diligence and reverential care of the ancient Jews in this work, especially when they entrusted a copy to be a rule for the trial and standard of other private copies. All right. So we're going to go back, and we will finish that next week, where we're going to actually name copies and talk about which ones are based on formal equivalents and the Texas Receptus, and which ones are not. And then we'll continue on with paragraph 9 next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.